use the word inspired. It just went, kind of went off in me while I was praying. The word inspired literally means to breathe in. We call the word of God, the, it's in the inspired word. It is God breathed. And God's desire is every time we open this word, every time you open it at home, but especially when we open it in this setting, God wants to take something from his heart through his word and breathe it into your heart. The first man was made alive because God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And every time we open the word of God together, every time I open the word, you open the word, I expect the spirit of God who's in me to breathe it across my heart, into my heart, which means some part of God's nature becomes alive in me. We've learned that when we were born again that God put his nature in us. He put his spirit in us. But we're not alive or awake to so much of it. And that's what the word of God does. It helps awaken us to it. And there are things that, are, that God wants to awaken you and me to. Not, these are all, we're not going to talk about anything today that you haven't heard of and don't have some understanding with your mind. But God's been calling me to deep deeper in my heart into these things and to cry out to him with my heart so that my heart is touched and moved by these things because it's when your heart is touched that you'll do things differently. And we can do things because we know we're supposed to, but the spirit with which you do it is what you'll communicate. So that if we go out to care for and to share the gospel with people because we're supposed to, that's what you're going to communicate. But if we do it because we really care about people, because we care about their soul, we care about them the way God cares about them, then what we will communicate to them is God's love for them. And that's what changes us. That's what's changed you. That's what's changing me. And that's what will continue to change us. And the Word of God teaches us that the Spirit of God is in us, at work in us, whether you realize it, even when you're sleeping. He's at work in us to form Christ. To form Christ. Paul's prayer for the Ephesian church which has been my prayer for me, for my wife, and for you, is that God would strengthen us by his spirit in our inner man with might, with power, so that Christ might dwell in us. That means he may be able to live his life, what he wants to do, his heart, his nature, his will, his desires, that he may live his life in you and through you. And then just in case we think that's impossible, he says, for God is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all we can ask according to the power that works in us. And right before that, he says, so that we may be filled with all of his fullness. Well, God is love. So to be filled with his fullness is to be filled with his love for people, his love for you, his love for other people. So we've been looking, you may open your Bibles with me to Hebrews chapter 4. We've been talking about entering his rest. And as, as we've done that, we've seen that, that I, so, I know so many Christians, and there are times in my life where I'm one of them, where I'm just worn out. Life wears you down, but not just physical life, not just natural life, even our spiritual life. We, we are prone as human beings to get weary, tired. And Paul Paul calls the church at Galatian, the Galatian church, back to this by saying, don't be weary in well-doing. The end of the book of Hebrews challenges us to not throw away our confidence because there's a great reward that goes with it. So there's a, there's a need to be diligent, it says, and we've already looked at that, to not drift away from the hope and the calling that we've been called to in Christ. Because life distracts us, even our walk with God can sometimes distract us to, to, to drift away. And what we're learning is there's a rest that God has for us, and that rest is being centered on Christ. 
And when we ended last time, we talked about in Hebrews 4 what that rest is. It's over in, well, let's say verse 5, he says, um, let's go over to verse 6, says, therefore it remains for some to enter into this rest. And then he talks about the example of the Israelites, and we talked about them last time. Verse 9, for there, there remains therefore a rest for the people of God. For he who has entered his rest, that's God's rest, has himself ceased from his works as God did from his. Now there's an aspect of this rest, I believe, that's also talking about a rest in heaven. When we just rest from the stress of life and, the, and don't have to deal with our flesh anymore. But there's a different kind of rest that the apostles who wrote this is talking about here. Because earlier on, a few verses before, we, didn't, we talked about this last time, it tells what God's rest is. And the example he uses is the Sabbath rest. The Bible tells us that God created the world in six days. And then in the seventh day, he rested. And then in Exodus 20, when part of the Ten Commandments is that to observe the Sabbath. That's just a Hebrew word for rest. So observe the day of rest because God hallowed it and made it sacred. Why? Why did he make it sacred? Because on the seventh day, God rested. And why did he rest? This is what we looked at last time. He didn't rest because he was tired. You and I, after a full day's work, can come home and get, I can take my shoes off, put my feet up, you know, get, get a, something to drink, and you know, non-alcoholic, and something to drink, you know, maybe a snack, and just rest and relax. You know, maybe read the newspaper or watch some nice TV or something. You know, just, I gotta, I've got to get a, I gotta, a rest. God never has to rest that way. He doesn't come to the end of this. And if anybody would have the opportunity, he's got to deal with all of us. God doesn't come to the end of his day. Of course, God doesn't come to the end of a day. Aren't you glad? And God says, oh man, what a tough day this was. Oh, I got this crisis in the Middle East. I mean, this mess now of the terrorists. I mean, do you, do you have any idea what I had to deal with today? And let alone those Christians. God doesn't get tired. So the rest that he has cannot be a rest from weariness. So what is his rest from? He rested because the works were done. The work was finished. And when the work's finished, there's no more, there's no more work to do, so you rest from working. And the verse we just tells, read tells us that we are to endeavor, we are to, to, to be diligent to enter into His rest. His rest is because His cre- work of creation was finished. On the cross, Jesus announced that His work was finished because He said His last words from the cross was, It is finished. What was finished? The battle over sin for your life and my life was finished. Because we saw in chapter 2, on the cross, and when Jesus was died, buried, and raised from the dead, he destroyed the power of Satan, and the power that Satan had was sin in our lives. 
and he destroyed its power. Doesn't mean it's not out there. He destroyed its power over anybody that comes to the cross. Because on the cross, that sin was paid for. The penalty was paid in full. So Jesus announces that your struggle with guilt and shame and my struggle with guilt and shame, for all of those who have come to Christ, our struggle to overcome guilt and shame and sin is over. Say, how come I'm struggling against Because you haven't entered into the rest yet. You're still trying to get something that's already been finished. There's no power in you trying to stop sinning. The power is in the faith that has been dealt with and walking in that. And I ended by saying the symptom that we're not entering into that rest is when you're up one day and down the next. You're blowing this way and this way. This day, God's the greatest thing. Oh, God is good all the time. God does so. Oh, he's been so good to me. And then tomorrow morning I wake up and I don't feel that. And now everything's lost. I don't know where God is. He's the same place he was the day you thought he was the greatest thing that's ever existed. He hasn't changed. What's changed is what we've been looking at. And so we're to be diligent to enter that rest. And we saw in chapter 2 that it's not just an option. It's, not, it's important because if we don't enter into that rest, we're prone to be drifting away. Well, how do we enter that rest? Well, chapter 4, let's look at verse 1. We're not going to dwell on this because there's somewhere else. Chapter 4 tells us this, and we kind of went over this last week when we looked, in the, uh, when we looked at, the, um, at uh, uh, the children of Israel. Chapter 3 ends by talking about the children of Israel, chap- using them as an example. So it ends by saying, we, so we see that they could not enter, that's the promised land, that's their rest because of unbelief. Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear, let us be alert, let us be diligent, lest any of you seem to come short of that promise, of that rest. For indeed, the gospel, the good news was preached to us as well as it was to them. The good news that was preached to them is that there was a land of promise, a place of rest for them. And the good news that was preached to us is there's also a place of rest. For the word that was preached to, the, to us as well as to them, but the word that, was, that they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. So the reason they didn't enter into the rest is they didn't believe what God said about it. We went back and looked at that last week we saw that God told them, I have given this land to you. Go in and possess it. It's a land flowing with blessings, milk and honey. Oh, and by the way, there are the Amazites and the Perizzites and the Hittites and all the other rites in there. But I've given it to you. They sent the 12 spies in and they come back and 10 of them says, yes, everything God said about it is true, but we can't enter in because these are giants in that land. There are fierce warriors in that land. And we are small in our own sight. We are actually, it says, like grasshoppers in our sight. And so we are in theirs. Therefore, we cannot enter in. Why could they not enter in? Because they evaluated whether they could receive what God had for them based on how they saw themselves. Their own strength. Their own might. Their own knowledge. 
their own skill. God didn't say anything to them about their might, their skill, or their ability. God just said, I've given it to you. So they refused to believe what God said He would do for them, and therefore they refused to obey Him and enter in, all because they kept looking at themselves and what they were capable of and what they could do. And that lesson is here for us. Because it says we, there's still, there's a rest for us. And unless we take God at His word the way they didn't, and unless we believe that God has said what I've done for you the way they didn't, because when we don't look at what God said He's done, we look at our, whether we can rest, whether we can come into the presence of God, whether we can be acceptable in God's sight, we look at ourselves and our strengths and our ability and our resources just as the children of Israel did. And that kept them from entering into the joy and the peace and the rest that He paid for for them. And the same lesson is true of us. Satan wants you to keep looking at yourself. Well, I don't do this, and I don't read my Bible enough, and I don't pray enough, and I don't give enough, and I don't do this enough, and I don't, and I don't, and I don't, and I don't. I'm just like a grasshopper when it comes to the presence of God. I'm so weak and so unable. God never said anything about your ability. Jesus on the cross never said anything about your ability. He said what he came to do was for you was finished and for me. And so we have to receive that by faith. Faith is simply taking God at his word, regardless of what things look like to me. And because I take God at his word, I act as if it's so. So though I don't feel righteous, the Bible says he took my sin and gave me his righteousness. I don't feel righteous, but he said he's made me righteous. So I act as if I am. Not self-righteous, Christ-righteous. Because the righteousness he gave you is his, not one you've earned. So we can take no credit for it, we just receive it as an act of faith. But there's a second way to enter into this rest that I had never seen before. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 11. Very familiar verse. Matthew chapter 11. The times I've cried this out and prayed this. Jesus is speaking. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. That means weighted down with heavy work. And I will give you rest. So Jesus is here telling us a way that he has provided for us to receive rest that he has for us. Notice he says, come. It's an invitation. Come to me. He doesn't say come to Christianity because Christianity is not a religion. It's a relationship. He called us to himself just as he did the disciples. Matthew, you the tax collector. Levi, you come follow me. Peter, James and John, leave your boats and think, come follow me. It was an invitation, a personal invitation to each one of them to enter into a relationship and a walk with him. And that's what he extended to you and to me. And here he's talking to us, come to me. All, so it's open to everybody. All you who are weary 
and weighted down, heavy weighted. And he's referring here specifically to, to, the, to, the, to the Jews at that age who had been given all kinds of laws and re- requirements in order to be righteous in the temple. They took the Ten Commandments and turned them into some 612 or 13 or 18, some incredible number of rules you had to keep. You had to wash your cup just a certain way, not to get rid of the germs, but to ceremonially cleanse it. You could only eat certain things in certain ways. It was just unbelievable. And imagine having to remember 600 rules. It was all based on, you know, how you dressed and... and, and as we look at them, and how would they do that? We do that today. We do that right here. Right now we're doing that. And God's just opening my eyes to ways that we just create. We create unwritten rules that aren't in the Word of God that keep people from coming to Him because they become our traditions. Remember Jesus said, the traditions of men make the Word of God of no effect? Wow. There are traditions that are good, but not if they're keeping people from God. Not if they're keeping us away from Him. Not if they're wearing us down and weighting us down. And some of you have been in churches that was like that. It was full of don't do this, and you can't do this, and you can't do this, and you can't wear this, and you can't look like this, you can't do this, you can't... Yes, there are certain things the Bible talks about, but they're a whole lot simpler than that. And Jesus says, come to me, all you that are weary, But it's not just from the rules and regulations. It's just from, see, we put pressure on ourselves. I got to live up. I got to do this. I got to do that. We put some of the weight on ourselves. Or we look at somebody else. I need to be like them. And so we try to be like them and we try to imitate what they're doing. And we don't know what's going on in their heart. We don't know what God dealt with them about. We don't know why God told them not to do this sort of thing. And so we try to, so we pile these things on ourselves. And then we've got wonderful Christians that will help put them up on your back. And they will help tie them securely there so that they don't fall off. And that's, then we got the devil out there doing it too. Come to me, Jesus says. Come to me. If you're weary, if you're worn out by trying to walk right before the Lord, if you're worn out by this process of, of, of serving Him, come, Jesus says, to me. All you who are tired, worn down, and heavy burden, heavily burdened. And he says, and I will give you rest. And I will give you rest. But it doesn't stop there. He tells us how to receive this rest. He tells us how to enter into this aspect of the rest. He says, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. A yoke represents the burden. It represents represents the responsibility. It refers to a yoke of an oxen, and I'm sure you've all seen pictures of this. But an oxen, an ox, in order to pull the cart or the plow, had to have something that when the ox walked forward would be connected to the plow or the cart so the cart or the plow would follow. So they would take this beam of wood because an ox's shoulders were big and heavy and they would, and they would cut out a arch hole for the, for the neck of the ox and they would 
put this over him and there would be pins or some way by which they could tie the, the, uh, the, the, the cart or the plow to it. So it represented this, this weight of this, this piece of wood, heavy piece of wood that rested on the shoulders of the ox and then you would often have a yoke of ox. You have several of them so there would be a, a, a big piece of wood with two of these neck openings in it that would fit down over the ox. So the yoke represents what's on you so that you can carry the load and accomplish the work that he's given you to do. He says, come take my yoke upon you. Not the one you put on you. Not the one some other person put on you, but the one I've given to you to wear. So the first thing is if you're worn out right now, just trying to serve God, perhaps you have put a yoke on yourself that Jesus didn't put on you. Now, he doesn't say we don't work. He doesn't say my yoke means you just sit at home, watch TV, and sip iced tea or a Diet Coke. No, no, no. There's work. There's things you may have to go through, but he enables you. It will not wear you down. It will not wear your faith down. It will not wear your commitment down. It will not wear your love for him down. It will not cause you to drift away. But the yoke you put on yourself, the yoke that others put on you, that becomes so burdensome, we get our eyes off of the Lord, and that's where we begin to wander off. Come to me. All ye that are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me, you, and here's how you do it. Look at this. And learn from me. Jesus said, you, if you're weary, come and learn from me. Because I'm going to teach you what my yoke is. I want to show you the yoke I have for you to wear, because that woke yoke is easy. And that burden we're going to see is light. Come, come to me and learn from me. Learn from me. And what I have to show you will be my yoke that is easy and my burden is light. And so what is it we're to learn from him? For I am gentle, the New King James says. Other translations say meek. I am gentle and lowly in heart. Now let me talk to you about what that means there because in our vernacular, in the way we use lowly, <coughs> often just means, has, has a meaning other than what this means. Lowly here means low in his own estimation. Paul says in Romans 12, I think it's around verse 6, he says, don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to. He's talking about how he sees himself. It says in the Beatitudes that blessed are the poor in spirit. That doesn't mean weak. That doesn't mean destitute. That means who have a, have a, have a, have a, don't have an, a puffed up image of themselves. It says, come and learn from me, for I am meek. Now, listen carefully. Meek, with an M, does not mean weak, with a W. Jesus wasn't weak. You can't stand there while they're stripping your flesh off with that stuff, nailing you to a cross and not open your mouth and be weak. And not strike back. Even with words. 
Years ago, there was a television program called Gentle Ben. Anybody remember Gentle Ben? Remember what Ben was? He was a huge black bear, I think. Well, bears aren't weak, are they? What was gentle about him is his strength and his power was restrained. So gentleness or meekness is restrained or submitted ability. It doesn't mean... See, some people are weak because they're just... They're, they're that, you know, 90-pound weakling. You know, they can't lift the weights. They can't win a wrestling match. They're weak, but they can't do it. Weakness means I don't have the strength or the ability to do it. Meekness means I have it, but I don't exercise it. I have it, but I have submitted it for a purpose and for a reason. So Jesus has come to me and learned something from me. Here's what I want you to look, look at me, he says. I am meek and lowly of heart. I don't have any ambition of my own. I'm not here trying to prove who I am. I'm not here to try to prove anything about myself. In fact, one man came to him one time and says, Good master, and he stopped him. He says, Wait a minute. There's no one good except my father. Wait a minute. Jesus never sinned. But he's acknowledging the goodness that he has has come from his father. He can take no credit for it. Well, if he can't, why do we think we can take credit for our goodness? Come to me. Learn from me. What do I want you to learn from me? I'm meek. All who I am and all I can do, I have submitted. We're going to look at that in a few minutes, how he did that. I have submitted for a purpose. And I am lowly of heart. I have no ambition of my own. We're talking about rest. And you will find rest for your souls. So there's a rest for our souls in meekness. There's a rest for our souls when we've taken all our own personal ambitions and let them go. I'm going to talk about what that means in a minute. There's a rest here that Jesus is promising us. And you will find rest for your souls. What's he talking about? Well, go with me to Psalm 131. King David found this. Lord, my heart is not haughty or full of pride, nor my eyes, this is the king, nor my eyes lofty. That word actually means arrogant nor do I concern myself with great matters, nor with things that are too profound or too difficult for me. Now, King David was not weak. He was the king. He was not ignorant. He was bright. He wrote most of the Psalms. But he said, as king, someone God has used to kill a giant, to slay a bear and a lion, to lead a great nation. My heart is not haughty or proud or lifted up in me. Neither do I have any great ambition for myself. I am like, let's go on and read what he says. 
Surely I have calmed and quieted my soul. Like, now notice the connection. His soul was calmed and quieted when he, when he was not haughty or proud, when he did not have great amb- personal ambitions within him. As he let those things go, his heart quieted down. He says, I become like a weaned child with his mother. <clears throat> like a weaned child is my soul within me. Now, now it's been so long since we've had children, I'm not sure I know what's going on today. But the idea is this, that when a child was born, they would nurse the, the, the baby. The mother would nurse, not they, the mother would nurse the baby. And then there would come a point where that child was too old to be nursed. It was time to leave the breast and begin to eat more solid food, eat food that was more fitting for a child and an adult to eat. And that process for a child was difficult because this is all the child knew. The warmth of the mother's breast, the, the wonderful taste of this mother's milk, and this in the comfort of being held and loved and talked to and cooed at, all of this was comforting and strengthening. But there came a point in the child's life where they were getting too old for that. And now they needed to transition to the next level of physical maturing, which is to learn to eat solid food, to learn to drink food other than that came from mother's breast. And for the child, that separation from what they knew, what they were used to, what they were comfortable with, which warmed them and comforted them, that was traumatic, it was difficult, it was agitating. And so a child would go through this anxious process where they would be anxious inside because they didn't know. And any time we go through change, because we're human, we go through the same kind of thing. We get used to the way things have been done. I know where my seat is on Sunday morning. I know how we're going to start the service. I know what we're going to do next. Don't be so sure we're always going to do it that way. And then when we start changing things, it's like, oh, we get anxious. Why? Because my security is in what I know. But if that child never stops nursing and they get to be 18, 19 years old, there's a problem there. <laughs> now, there's some 18, 19-year-olds that they may not literally be at their mother's breast, but they haven't been weaned yet. They're still dependent on mom or dad and whatever. They're still dependent on them. They haven't made that separation to stand on their own. And that's an anxious time. But because a parent loves that child, they'll make them go through that knowing that they will come out the other side of that and they will finally, they will be far better off by having gone through that anxious time and there will come a point when it's over, when the child finally accepts, I can survive, I'm going to be okay. This cheeseburger is all right. I can eat that, you know, whatever. And, and, they, and then they settle down and rest back in that again. And that's what King David's talking about here. He said, I've stopped, I've stopped trying to prove myself. I've stopped trying to assert myself. I've stopped having my own personal ambition for what I want to be and what I want to accomplish. I've learned to let that go so that I do what God wants to do. I've given my life away. We sang that song. And he said, I've tasted now. My soul is at rest like a child that's been weaned. And then he goes and ends, Israel, trust in the Lord. Let's go to Philippians chapter 2. 
and we'll see. Jesus said, come and look at me. Come and look at me and learn from me. right next to Ephesians. He's talking here in the beginning about comfort and fellowship and affection and mercy and his joy. And he tells them to be like-minded. And what, to be like-minded about what? Verse 3. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others as better or more important than themselves. He's telling them here, look, you need to be together of one mind. You need to have one purpose. And that's what I believe God's calling us to. He said, and there's comfort in this. There's joy in this. There's peace in this. Look at one another as each that everybody else being more important than you are. And get rid of your own personal ambition to promote yourself and to be somebody, whether it's in the world or in the church. And that's, it's one thing to tell us not to do something. Don't be selfish. Don't be advancing yourself. Don't be promoting yourself. That's one thing, but how do we do that? Because God always, when He tells you what not to do, will tell you how to do it. So if you do what He tells you to do, then by definition, you won't do what He tells you not to do. So He's telling us here how to put aside our own personal selfish ambition. And if you're sitting here this morning thinking, well, I don't have any, That means you've already examined yourself and discovered that you're better than most of us because all of us have that issue somewhere down inside. And I thought I'd gotten rid of a lot of that. And all that does is strip away a layer which allows the surgeon's knife of the Holy Spirit to dig down inside. I'm told when they do brain surgery that they, and some of you have been through this, what they'll do is they'll ch test certain things and they'll touch parts of your brain with an electrode and it, it, it triggers certain things. Well, the Spirit of God is a way to do that. Down in the depths of our heart where there's things we don't even know, where there's pride and things we don't even know are there. He can shine that light down in there and touch this and all of a sudden you find something rising in you you didn't know was in there. You say, whoa, I didn't know that was still in there. This is why we need his help. But he needs your permission to do it. Consider one another. That's an act of our will. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in lowliness of mind, that's the same lowliness, let each of you esteem others as better than himself. See, there's a re the rest that he's talking about here is we live in a world that's ingrained in us. It's ingrained in our flesh that you've got to take care of numero uno. In fact, it happened in the garden because the basis of the fall in the garden was Satan got that man and woman 
to begin to protect themselves because what he was telling them is God is keeping something from you. Well, he's God. What if he wanted to keep something from him? Doesn't he have that right? He's God. God's holding something back from you. You need to do something to get it. You need to take your life into your own hands because you can't trust God. He's holding something back from you. Same, this is the, the root of what we're talking about. And because God's holding something back from you, you've got to take things into your own hands and all you've got to do is eat this and now you'll have enough knowledge of good and evil so that you can manage your own life. And God's still here to help you as a resource, but you need to take control of your own life. You need to be the master of your own destiny. You need to be a self-made man. You need to read books on self-help and self-discipline and self-this and self-that so that you can take charge of your own life and find out who you really are and make something of yourself. That's what he told him in the garden. That's called the fall. And the reason you and I are still dealing with all of that is because he did that. And so Jesus is saying to us, all the struggle you go through, all the weariness you're experiencing spiritually is because you're trying with his old nature, you're trying to do something that's against who I've made you to be on the inside. I dwell in you. And I want to be your God, your Lord. I want to reign in your life. I want to be able to live my life through you. Jesus says, I want to live in you and through you so that when people see you, they see me. And we want the power of Christ in us, but we don't want this. And all the struggle we have is trying to make something of ourselves, trying to protect ourselves, trying to hold on to what we got because I may lose what I have. Hold on to my time. Hold on to my money. Hold on to all this stuff because I'm going to need all this. I'm talking to me as much as you. It's built into our flesh. But God has occupied our spirit. So we have a choice we can make. And the struggle is trying to do something like that when that's no longer our nature. Really what it came down to is Satan tempted them to establish their own kingdom. And that's what you and I have been doing, living in our own kingdom. I'm king of my house. I'm king. I have my rights. All we hear out there is my rights this, and this right's being taken away from me, and that right is this, and I need to promote my right. We need to pick it for this right, and we need to do this right. And Jesus says, come and learn something from me. I didn't assert my rights. Well, let's go on and see what he did. Verse 4. Let each of you look out not only for your own interest, but also for the interests of others. Verse 5. Let this mind be in you. In other words, think this way. Which also was in Christ Jesus. About years ago, it was very common to talk about, I have the mind of Christ, and you have the mind of Christ. But he's telling us what he means by the mind of Christ here. Let this mind, this way of thinking, be in you that was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. In other words, Christ saying, I am equal with God, he was not taking something that was not already his because he was equal with God. He was just, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. He was in the beginning with God. 
The Word, Christ, was with God. He was equal with God. He is God in the full expression of the Father. He had all... Just think of what you and I can't even begin to imagine. All that came with being God. Absolute knowledge of everything. Absolute power. Absolute glory. Worshipped by millions of angels. Exalted and honored. In all of the heavenly creation. It says he did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. But what did he do? This is the mind that was supposed to be in him. This is the example. Verse 7. But he made, the New King James says, he made himself of no reputation. Some translations said he emptied himself. The word here is kenosis, K E N O S, which means an emptying out of self. Like when you clean out your closet. You take everything that's in there and you empty it out. Jesus took all the attributes he had as the second person of the Godhead. All the glory, all the majesty, all the power, all the knowledge, all the grace, all the honor. All, and you and I, again, cannot begin to imagine what he gave up until we get, back, get there. And he emptied himself of that. He willingly emptied himself. See, a lot of times we try to make ourselves into something we're not. He emptied himself of what he was. Ambition. He emptied himself of all of that and took on the form of man. Took on flesh. We know he let go of his glory because in John 17, he begins by saying, Father, I've done what you sent me here to do. Restore to me the glory that I had with you before the foundation of the world. Do you understand? The Bible tells us the worlds, that's not just this one, all of this universe was made through him. Everything that exists, he made it. It was the Father's will, but the Son made it. So when he comes to this earth and he's walking on dirt, it's dirt he made. The cross they nailed him to, he created it. Now the wood was formed, you know, but I mean, the power to create all this, he owned it all. Because he made it. But he emptied himself of that. He emptied himself of his rights and his privileges and took on flesh and dwelt among us. He made himself taking the form of a bondservant. He didn't come here as a king with a crown that everybody could see. He didn't knock Caesar off his throne and take his place. He could have. But he didn't. He came as a bond servant. Greek word is doulos. What it means is a servant. There are different types of servants. There's a servant that was made a servant because his nation was captured. And he was a servant against his will. But a doulos, the Greek word, is bond servant. 
that servant who's in a, made a, entered into a bond to become a servant. And that was a servant who either at the end of his forced servitude or for some other reason agreed with his master to become a servant. And they would poke a hole in their earring and put an earring in there, which is where earrings come from. So everybody that's out wearing earrings now, it's a sign you're a bondservant. <laughs> but they chose to give every, all their rights up to serve their master. They chose to. Taking the form of a bondservant, he came in the likeness of flesh. Oh, I don't want to get into that, but he was real flesh. And found in the appearance of man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death of the cross. So he didn't just humble himself and come and walk among us, but he submitted himself to the Pharisees and the Sadducees to be illegally tried and accused, false testimony being given against him, and he opened not his mouth to defend himself. The only time he opened his mouth was when Pilate said, don't you know I got power of life and death over you? And Jesus defended his father by saying, no, you have no power that my father hasn't given you. And then he was silent again. He submitted himself then to be beaten by the Roman soldiers, humiliated, stripped, shamed, mocked, horribly beaten, beyond recognition. They made him carry that beam of the cross and then he submitted again to lay there and allow them to drive those nails into his hands and his feet. They not only didn't force him to do this, this is what he wanted them to do. This is why he came. And he did this for them. And they didn't know it. He did this for the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they didn't know it. He took on a bond, himself a bondservant. And the essence of his service was to give his life on that cross. That he may be raised from the dead. And he says, come and learn from me. Learn from me. Learn how I operate. Learn my ways. I'm meek. I don't have my own ambition. My ambition was to do the will of the Father, whatever that meant. Now go with me to John chapter 13. We're going to see this in action. See, it's one thing for us to read it, but how, how do we receive this? I mean, this is almost more than we can grasp. Well, we're not alone. The disciples had the same challenge. John chapter 13. Now, before the feast of the Passover, Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. That word end is a Greek word that means two things. It means to the end of time, but it also means to the limit of what was needed. So he not only loved them through the whole end, but he loved them to the ultimate. And the proof of that was he gave his life for them. 
the ultimate price, the ultimate act of love is to give your life up for somebody else. And you love them to the limit. Now, supper having ended, he picked up the towel. We've talked about this before. The, habit, the, pattern, the, the custom in those days was when you came into somebody's house, of course, they wore sandals, their feet would get dirty. So they had a slave appointed who would greet you at the door with a basin of water and a towel. And while you were being greeted by whoever, the host or some other servant, they would, without you even noticing, take your sandals off. They would wash your feet. They would be kneeling down. They would wash your feet with the water. And then they would dry your feet with a towel and put your sandals back on or something else for you to wear. It was the job assigned to the lowest, most menial slave in the household. This room is a rented room. There is no slave assigned to it. So there's a bowl of water, there's a basin, and there's a towel. And they're all sitting down eating. And nobody's washed their own feet, and certainly nobody's washed anybody else's feet. And after supper, verse 4, he rose from supper, laid aside his garments, took a towel, and girded himself. And he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. And when he came to Simon Peter, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? And Jesus answered and said to him, What I'm doing now you do not understand, but you will understand after this. Peter says, You shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered and said, If I don't wash your feet, you have no place with me. That is most, one of the most powerful scenes in the Bible. And it's been in the last few weeks that I've felt God really drill us down deeper in my heart. If you read this in the original language, what Peter is saying to Jesus, you're washing my feet. You and my are right next to each other and they're emphasized. You're going to wash my feet. In other words, I know who you are. You're the Son of God. The, God the Father revealed that to me. I've watched you raise the dead. I've watched you walk on water. I've watched you heal multitudes. I've watched you feed at least two enormous groups. I know you who you are, and I know who I am. You're going to wash my feet? My whole walk with you is I am here to serve you. I am here to, to obey you. I am here to do for you what you need to do. I am here to follow you. And that looks wonderful, doesn't it? But Jesus rebukes him. He says, you don't understand. If you don't allow me to wash your feet, you have no place with me. Whoa. And here's what I began to see in my own life. I've tried to be as committed as I can be to serve the Lord, to be faithful, to do what he wants me to do. And I've failed in many cases, but I've been trying to be as I really want to be faithful. I want to serve him. That's my great ambition in life is to hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your Lord. And Peter was the same way. Peter said, Lord, I'm here to serve you. I'm here to do wonderful things for you. I'm here to worship you and honor you. I am here to do this for you. And Jesus says, you can't even be with me unless you allow me to serve you. Say so you can be a servant of the Lord, and this is what Peter was. Peter was confident in his commitment to serve the Lord. 
his whole eyes were very subtly on himself and his faithfulness to the point that not long after this, he says to Jesus, he says, look, I'll die with you, you and me, because I'm so committed, Jesus. I'll give my life up with you. He was confident in his devotion. He was confident in his service. He was confident in his commitment and what he was willing to do for the Lord. That was his ambition, to be more committed, to be more diligent, to be a greater servant. And Jesus says, you've missed it, Peter. Because obviously what happens is Peter denied him three times. Peter wasn't where he thought he was. Because Peter's confidence was in himself. Jesus said, unless you allow me to serve you, you have no place in me. Do you know how humbling that is? Oh, it's one thing for us to serve one another, but for God in the flesh to allow him to say, I, I need him to do something for me, confronted everything that was in Peter. Every ambition, every drive to prove something. All the self that was residing in Peter rose up at that point and says, Oh no, Master. And it sounded religious. It sounded wonderful. I'm here to serve you. And Jesus is saying, No, 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 Peter. The entrance into this is you've got to humble yourself enough to allow me to be a menial servant to you, to wash your feet. And Peter says, You shall never wash mine sounding very religious, very committed. You shall never wash my feet. It's pride. Spiritual pride. And Jesus says, then you have no place with me. And then, of course, Peter goes to the other extreme and says, give me a bath. (laughs) Now listen carefully. Jesus is God, right? God told Peter what he wanted to do. And Peter gave him two other alternatives. Peter's still operating as his own God. No, no, I know what you said, but here's a better idea. All Jesus wanted was obedience. Let me do for you what I I have to do for you. Let's go on and then we'll finish with this. And we'll pick up next time because there's another part to this. Over verse 14. Then he washes the rest of their feet. Verse 14. He, he said, if I, if I then, your Lord and teacher... Let's go back to verse um, 12. So when he'd washed their feet, taken the garments and sat down again, he said to them, Do you know what I've done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, Well, for so I am. I am God. I am your teacher, Rabbi, and I am Lord. And you are right. But if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, then you ought to wash also one another's. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do these. Jesus is telling them, 
come to me if you're leery, if you're struggling, if you're just worn out, and I'll give you rest. Learn from me, for I am meek and I am lowly. Paul says, learn from him. Have the same mind in you that was in Christ Jesus. And the example is, he emptied himself of his privileges. He emptied himself of his rights. He emptied himself of being who he was to become who you and I needed him to be. To serve us. And the example that Jesus walked out with his disciples is he took a basin. It's insignificant. He took out his garments of a rabbi and laid them aside and took on the towel and the basin of a menial servant and he washed their feet one by one. And then he says, if you're going to follow me, if you want to be at peace and rest as I am, you need to empty yourself of your ambition to make yourself somebody. You need to empty yourself of your pride and who, what people think of you and what I think of you and what you think of you. Empty yourself. Because you see, if we'll empty ourselves, then he'll fill us with himself. One of the laws of physics is two things can't operate, occupy the same space at the same time. And to the extent I'm filled with me, he can't occupy that space. And he's given us a way to do it. It's serving one another. Because he said, what I've now done for you, I'm calling you to go and to serve one another. I'm calling you to go and to think more highly of one another. And what have we done as a church? I don't mean, I'm not talking about this specific church, but the church in general. We become critics of one another. We become judges of one another. We become God of one another because the Bible warns us if you judge somebody, then you become the judge of the law. You step from the witness stand behind the bench to be the judge, and there's only one lawgiver. You step into God's role when you judge one another. There are things we are to judge, but people, we are not to judge because he says the way you judge others is the way you will be judged. So the rest that we can enter into, and we'll, there's another couple of verses we'll look at next time. The rest that God has for us is to draw to him, draw to Jesus, draw near to him. Just begin to look at him. Look at the attitude of his heart. He never defended himself. He never promoted himself. All he did was to do the Father's will. And Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do my Father's will? Many of you call me Lord, Lord, but you do not do the will of my Father. It's not what you call me. It's the heart and the attitude. Jesus wants to live his life in you and through you to a desperate, even more today than last week, desperate, dying world. And what they need to know is not the rules, not the regulations, not even the scriptures. They need to know the heart and love of God, that he came to love them and serve them. But he can only do that through you and through me. And if we can't love one another that way, how in the world are we going to go love our enemies that are out in the world? Let's pray. Father, as we read these words, they're convicting, they're challenging. And for some of us, they may seem overwhelming. 
But all you ask us to do is to draw near and to look at Jesus and to be willing to learn from him. And so we come, Lord. We confess to you that many of us, all of us to some degree, have been living our lives for ourselves. All of us to some degree have been thinking too much about ourselves and we're concerned with promoting ourselves and defending ourselves and holding on to what we have. And Lord, we need to be like Christ and we don't have the strength in ourselves. But we come to you to say, here we are, Lord. Here we are as your children, as your people. Strengthen us by your spirit in our inner man so that Christ might dwell in us by faith that being rooted and grounded in that love, we may come to know together with each other how wide his love is, how high his love will go, and how deep his love is, that we may be filled with all of his fullness, that he may live his life, his love, his humility, his service through us who belong to him. And as that looks overwhelming to us, We're comforted by the end of that scripture that says, Now unto him who's able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all we can ask or think according to the power of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. Amen.